Hey everyone, John Heilman here with the latest episode of Hell and High Water, my new podcast from The Recount, with our dope new theme music by my pal, The Rizza. My guest today is the celebrated film, television, and Broadway actor Jeff Daniels, who stars as former FBI director James Comey in the forthcoming two-part Showtime miniseries, The Comey Rule. This movie, for those who care or have enough of an open mind to at least try to understand why he did what he did, it's not to go, he's a hero, or to justify him. It's to go, this is what he was thinking, moment to moment to moment to moment. Part one of The Comey Rule premieres this Sunday, September 27th at 9 p.m. ET. Part two debuts at the same time on Monday night, both on Showtime. The miniseries arrives at precisely the perfect moment, albeit one that's likely to revive a collective national case of PTSD. On the eve of the first presidential debate between Joe Biden and Donald Trump, and almost exactly four years after Comey inserted himself in the last presidential campaign in ways that rocked the race and shocked the world. For anyone suffering from amnesia today or living on Neptune at the time, it was Comey who led the FBI's ultimately fruitless investigation into Hillary Clinton's emails and then reopened the case 11 days before the election, a move that many, including Hillary Clinton herself, believe cost Hillary the presidency and handed it to Trump. But it was also Comey who presided over the FBI probe into Russia's interference in 2016 and its ties to Trump, and who, having spurned the new boss's advances and demands for loyalty, was unceremoniously fired by Trump in spring of 2017, thereby triggering the appointment of special counsel Robert Mueller. For a podcast with the tagline Politics and Culture on the Edge of Armageddon, The Comey Rule is Perfect Fodder, a star-studded premium cable miniseries that's not merely about politics, but a series of seminal political events that ushered in with Trump's election, the apocalyptic moment we're living through right now. And who better to help unpack all of this than the actor playing the wildly controversial character at the center of the story, Jim Comey, the rare public figure in these hyper-polarized times who is despised equally by the left and the right, though for very different reasons. Jeff Daniels is an actor whose work I've admired since his turns in films like Purple Rose of Cairo and Something Wild in the 1980s, but we didn't get to know each other until a few years ago, amid the late career resurgence that saw Daniels snag three Tony, five Emmy, and two Golden Globe nominations, as well as winning two Emmys, after the age of 50, including wide acclaim for a pair of iconic collaborations with Aaron Sorkin, three seasons as Will McAvoy in the HBO series The Newsroom, and a year-long Broadway run as Atticus Finch in the revival of To Kill a Mockingbird. Daniels still lives in Chelsea, Michigan, the town where he grew up and his father served as mayor. His passion for politics, his disgust with Trump, and his dismay at the angry and fearful state of the country are all sentiments he wears on his sleeve. And while he has played plenty of villains in his career, the characters Jeff connects with most powerfully are heroes, the kinds of characters he sees as being in short supply on the national stage these days. All of which is why, with the Comey rule premiere at hand, I was eager to get Jeff on the pod. I knew that when he'd taken on the role, he wondered if he could locate any heroism in Comey, I also knew that most viewers would say, no fucking way. Was it there? Did Jeff find it? For the answers to those and some much larger questions, like what is actually factually at stake on November 3rd, I am totally psyched to welcome my friend Jeff Daniels to Hell and High Water. Are you sitting in Michigan right now or are you sitting someplace else? I'm in Michigan. Okay, you're home. I am. It makes me happy to think you're home because I know how happy you are when you're home. 
Yeah, and it's it's uh, aside from everyone so far being healthy, uh, the whole family is kind of together and grandchildren and you know I'm playing golf again with my boys and guitar, so that's it's kind of like forced retirement, but you know with the threat of you know COVID around the corner. So first of it, all, it's been okay. First of all, I know for a fact that you sort of like the forced retirement lifestyle. Number one, I, I, I am embracing it. Yes. And number two, I saw a picture you sent me of that little mini golf course you set up at, at, at the place in Michigan. And, yes. And are you, when you say you're playing golf with the boys, you mean real golf or are you playing on that little, that little wiffle ball golf course that you got in the backyard? There have been some real golf at local <laughs> public courses around, yeah. uh, around here, but that, yeah, we set up an 18 hole, one club only, usually a six or a seven iron and plastic balls. And you have to hit the tree trunk in the air and yeah. all kinds of things. It's been, it's been great fun. It's helped to get us through this. I'm desperate to get there to play around. It feels like the best version of kind of drunk mini golf. Like we could go out there and just, you know, knock back a six pack and have a lot of fun with some, pl some plastic golf balls. Cause you're not going to break anything with those. It's all good. No, you're not. But it's but it, at each hole, you think you're standing on the tee of winged foot. You know, it, it's uh, you're, it, there's a there's some design to it. It's not easy. Yeah, especially no. when plastic plastic balls in a thirty mile an hour wind out of the west. Well, that's the thing is you have some time in COVID in the lockdown to like design a genuinely challenging like wiffle wiffle ball course. Nothing but time. Yep. You know, it's weird, of course, because you know, normal world where you could travel if you had a mini series about to debut on on our on our joint network, my, my patrons network, my, my boss's network showtime. If you were about to roll out the Comey rule, you'd be like flying around the country and doing interviews on the West coast and the East coast. And there'd be a premiere and there'd be a party and there'd be all that stuff. But basically now it's like, it's about to debut and you're at home in Michigan playing putt-putt golf. Tailor made, baby. Tailor made <laughs> for the guy who, oh, and I don't have to go to hotels. I yeah. don't have to get, Oh, this is it's, it's, it's been great. It'll be interesting to see what comes out the other end of the pandemic, whether yeah. things like this have any legs as far as promotion, at least in the, for actors in the yeah. uh, film and TV industry. We'll see. So let me start with the Comey rule. Um, as you know, it's a project that I'm not intimately, but somewhat familiar with. And, and I'll, I'll, we'll start with this little story, right? Which is it's summer of 2019 and I get a text message from you wanted to have a chat about mm -hmm. this project. There's a book, it's based on the book by Comey himself, The Comey Rule Is. It's a two-night miniseries about Jim Comey, former FBI director, and a bunch of historic events that took place in 2016 and 2017. There's a script that's been written by Billy Ray, Showtime, CBS, Own It, and it has now come to you as a possible thing you might play. And you reached out to me why and to discuss what. I didn't know a lot of people who knew him or at least had sat next to him at, at various, you know, shows on MSNBC or wherever. And, and you had, and, and I didn't know anything other than the book. So, and you've always been a straight shooter, whether it's in front of the camera or behind it. So I said, tell me what he's like. I, I just needed some, somebody who had knew, who had known him or knew of him or was, a, had been around him. It's just, you know, tell me the good and the bad. And and you were very helpful. You were very helpful on that. What you liked and what you thought might be uh, where he's weak or whatever, which is what you're doing, which is you're looking for the things to flesh out the human being. So it's, it seemed to me like there were two questions on the table, one of which was, are you going to take this job? And the other was, if I take yeah. this job, how am I going to play him? 
And I'm not I'm not trying to dra- I'm not trying to drag myself in the middle of the story, but I think you were thinking about those two things. Is this a worthy project? Number one, do I want to play this guy? And if I'm going to play him, how am I going to play him? And I'm, that's what I'm trying to get to, like how you were thinking about it at that point. That why, how you made the decision in the end to that this is a job I want, a role I want, and then how am I going to approach it? Um, yes, it was. Um, I didn't know how to play him, and that was one of the reasons I ended up taking it. That's the challenge of it for me. And I've done that um, since Newsroom. I've done that a lot. Atticus Finch on Broadway was another one. I don't know how I'm going to pull this off, but yes. And the yes and not knowing, it's what's keeping me interested after 44 years of doing this. It's the challenge. It's the risk of failure. It's the not knowing. It's the unknown that will get me through this project. And, and, and I, didn't, I didn't know a thing. Usually when you something will mcavoy and newsroom or even atticus you kind of can well i'll use my dad to start with atticus and just you know there's a starting point i didn't have a starting point with jim and one of the things you said which which sent me on a quest was that some people think that he's a little self-righteous yeah that his right is bigger than your right and and I found that interesting, and and I said, okay, well that that great, that that gives me something to chase, and it led me to why his right can be taken as bigger than your right, why he can be perceived as self righteous, and maybe at times he was, but I had to play it like Jim Comey is not going to now be self righteous. You can't play that, right. but you can play. My belief in the institution, uh, the Department of Justice, my belief in the integrity of the FBI and the rule of law and what is right and what is true. All of those things are bigger than me and they're bigger than you. And if that makes me self-righteous, so be it. But that is his, it became, that was his North Star. And as soon as you started to and the more I worked on it and went through it, as soon as you start to hear the, the political arguments from either the left or the right regarding any decision he was about to make, he had to look towards his North Star. And I can see where people who are, you know, political um, might just roll their eyes and go, oh, what a Boy Scout. He's being self-righteous again. And... And what I learned, and a little bit was from, from you of, of going, you know, maybe he's that, okay, was that maybe that's his North Star and that maybe the next one you're going to see is Fiona Hill. Right. And the next one you're going to see is Maria Bonovich. Then you're going to see William Taylor. Then you're going to see Colonel Nabinman and others. Right. I and mean, their sense of right and rule of law and justice and the the integrity of the institution for which they work plus the constitution is bigger than they are. And, and that's where I landed. So that's one of the things, I mean, I think the phrase I use with you and that I would still apply to Comey is moral rectitude, like that he had a sense, he had his, his belief in his own moral rectitude was important to him. And I think is important to him. You can play that. You can argue that's a good thing or a bad thing. It could veer into self-righteousness or not, but after we talked, I, you wrote me an email, and I'm going to quote it here just because I don't think it'll oh, get you. Oh, for God's sake. I know it won't get you in any okay. trouble. You asked me the question. It was a question. You said, is Comey one of those heroes? 
And I think it was, you were referring to something you'd said maybe on television or in public at some point where you were talking about, you were talking about how America needs heroes at that point. You were talking about the Trump era and how America needs heroes. We need people to step forward. We need people to be bold and be brave and to stand up for things that matter and to have principles and, and fight the good fight. And I think you were referring to that. You had said it somewhere, maybe on MSNBC. I don't know. But the question was, is Comey one of those heroes? And I ducked that question and you, and I, I ask you now whether having spent time with him and played him. And I'll, I'll remind, not that anybody on the, who listens to this will need to know. Most people hate him. The the left hates him for what he did to Hillary Clinton. The right hates him for what he did to Donald Trump in a very polarizing time. He's a rare figure who, who has achieved bipartisan consensus, which is that both sides hate him for totally different reasons. So I ask you, given all of your now having been inside him and all the things you did to get ready to play the role and then played it, is he one of those heroes? I think he's one of those guys who he was first out of the blocks with calling Trump on on stuff, certainly the loyalty dinner. And in that sense, he is. Um, You could argue in July that he went too far when he stepped to the podium to say that they're closing, you know, Billy Ray, the writer director has said he might've worded that differently. Right. And when he said, you're um, talking about July, you're talking to July, 2016, when he, when, when he closed, yeah. closed the Clinton investigation, but then trashed her at his press conference. Yeah. And, and all I can tell you is that, uh, uh, nobody's perfect and neither is he. And what the film shows is that he was between a rock and a hard place before that, event, as he was in October when they decided to send the letter to the Gang of Eight. It wasn't as simple as him just going off on his own. Right. And I, to go back to your moral rectitude, I think Jim starts there and then opens the floor to knock me off that pedestal. Yeah. Tell me why that doesn't apply to this particular decision, whether it's Hillary's email investigation to go out to the podium and not Loretta Lynch or Sally Yates, or whether it's to send the letter to the gang of eight and reopen that. You know, uh, I think he, I think he isn't, he's not going in at a zero or a neutral. He's going in. I know what's right. I know what the rule of law would say, please argue it. Let's see all sides. And the film shows him going, no, 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 no. Tell me, what are you thinking? I want to know what you're thinking. And he, I think he, I, I played it anyway, that, that knocked me off that. Right. But if you don't, that's where I'm staying. And, and often that's, that's what he does. Cause, cause it, you know, as crazy as it got, especially down with a month ago in the election. Right. Um, you know, we could, we, we needed a little moral rectitude at yeah. that point. Yeah. And, and so I, I think it served him well, uh, but it certainly upset you know, everyone. I just wonder, like, as you, I mean, what was the, what, did you find the key? At some point you pick the lock. I know with you that this is the thing. You're always looking for the way in and eventually you pick the lock and somehow something falls into place and you see the thing that becomes where you find your traction, how you attach yourself to that thing. And so it's like, okay, I got this guy now. I understand how to play this. In meeting him, in reading the script, in reading the book and talking to a variety of people, me, other people, whoever, like, was there a moment when the penny dropped and it was suddenly like, oh, I get who this guy is now and this is how I'm going to play him? Uh, there was a lot of all of that research. The yeah. book, the audio book of him, Jim reading it, yeah. that helped. Even seeing him on Colbert, you know, you can see his sense of humor. Yeah. So 
you got to back up and, and go, he's not alive and I'm not trying to please him. Right. And I'm not, I mean, that would be a bonus if he liked it. My job is to play a dramatic character in a story. And, and so the approach is the same. I could imagine his face. I, I saw so many pictures of his face. I could make those faces. Now I, and I still, but I knew I wasn't, I didn't look like Jim. Yeah. But I could, you know, do something where I look up and, you know, you look kind of, it's that. I, I just know I can feel like his face, like, like morphed onto mine, but I don't look like him. The key, when the penny dropped, was when I was, I remember in October 2016, like many people, when it came out that they were reopening the investigation, is what the hell is this guy thinking? The Clinton investigation. In October 20th, when they're going to reopen the, uh, the, the, the Hillary 33,000 email. Yeah, the email, the Hillary, the Hillary Clinton investigation, yeah. We're going to send the letter to the gang, and eight, gang of eight knowing they're going to leak it, and right. you know, it's, everything's going to hit the fan. Uh, I said, that's it. This movie, for those who care or have enough of an open mind to at least try to understand why he did what he did, it's not to go, he's a hero, or to justify him is to go, this is what he was thinking, moment to moment to moment to moment. Meryl Streep is the best moment to moment moment actor we've got. That's what this was. Break it down into moments and think like Jim. Think your way through. Listen to him read that book. Read that book. See him on, just, just become him. Kind of inhabit him mentally so that you can think your way through these scenes and then come to those decisions. And, and I, I said to Billy Ray, I said, I hope I'm doing enough. You know, this isn't Gary Oldman and Churchill, you know, which was a great performance. <laughs> yeah. Charlize Theron in, in Bombshell. I yeah. mean, my God, it was just, it was complete. Right. I'm going, it's me in a hairpiece. Yeah. And, and Billy, he goes, yeah, we can read your mind. I said, great. That's all I'm trying to do. You want to know what he was thinking? This is what he was thinking. And that became the key and then, John, in movie world, the rest is a roll of the dice. And it just, it worked. It worked. We got lucky. Because of having written Game Change about 2008 and seeing it made into a movie, I have a pretty decent sense of one of the challenges that you all faced with the Comey rule, which uh, has to do with casting. Part of the reason that Game Change, the movie, focuses on John McCain and Sarah Palin is that HBO was like really nervous. I mean, nervous, nervous about being able to successfully cast Obama and, you know, maintain the suspension of disbelief from the audience. Obama had just been elected. He was everywhere all the time. And the bar is just so high when you're casting someone who is that ubiquitous. So we ended up doing, you know, McCain and more importantly doing Palin, which you know, it was pretty hard, right? She was famous. She was a celebrity. Her face and manner were very familiar. But, you know, even Palin wasn't on TV and in your face every minute of every day like Obama. So, okay, so in the Comey rule, it's way, way worse, right? The history feels like it was just yesterday. It's super raw and people are still really pissed at Comey for stealing the election from Hillary or so they say. And then there's Trump who is, even more omnipresent and inescapable than Obama. He's like the most omnipresent, inescapable president ever. So like if I were Brendan Gleeson playing Trump, that would have freaked me the fuck out. And, you know, even for you, it's like you're playing Comey, but I assume that was pretty daunting, especially 
and especially sort of freaky now, like right now where it's about to air and the election's about like six weeks away and it's all anyone's talking about and thinking about. Is that not, like I said, is that not daunting? No. <laughs> no. I, 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 look, it's a complicated character. It, it, it's people will hate watch it. Yeah. People will, people might change their minds. Probably not all of them, but but they they will watch it. It will be it matters. Lanford Wilson was a Pulitzer Prize winning playwright. When I was going to go off to do movies, he goes, "Make it matter, make it count. This matters, this counts. If you watch it, whether you hate him or not, you will come out the other end of it, at least like I did. I hope you do. Going, oh my God, it was just the beginning. Right. It's the first inning of a game that is going into extra innings it's the first inning we didn't know that then and you start to hear lines coming out of the movie and you just i remember just going oh my god oh my god we're three years beyond that why we're three years beyond that misstatement before that but you know i mean when you look back at what comey went through like him or not he took some notes on a dinner and is arguably one of the first whistleblowers. And we need those people right now. Now, you may not like him, but be glad he took some notes. You're a Democrat. We can say that out loud. You've been very clear about it in, in a lot of interviews. You're not a big fan of the president, the current president of the United States. Did your view, you know, before this project came your way, you thought X about Comey, and now you think Y about Comey? Or did you have a different, obviously you have a deeper appreciation for the guy. You had would have to have to uh, come to know him as well. But does your assessment of him and the choices he made, did those change? No, not the decisions he made. I, I think he made the decisions he had to make for for good reasons and reasons that made sense to him and that protected the integrity of the fbi i didn't know that back then so i have a deeper understanding of what he did to make the decision between a rock and a hard place as you know in basic drama you want your hero or your flawed hero or your lead character to get up to a rock and a hard place and where the audience doesn't know what he's going to do because he doesn't know what he's going to do and then the story finishes with the third act. We had that in spades, just as a dramatic story with what Jim went through. Um, but there were a lot of factors. And we, we, were a different, we were a different country in October 2016. Grab me by the pussy, it happened a day or two before. Yeah. Giuliani and WikiLeaks were going to leak the 33,000 emails. Giuliani was on Fox News saying, big surprise coming in a couple of days. So it was coming out. And he had to decide whether that would be good for the integrity of the FBI or bad. And maybe there was something there. You have to go into every investigation with a neutral kind of point of view. No one's guilty. No one's innocent. Let's investigate. All that stuff. I didn't know that. And, you know, the other thing, too, is that that became a big story. That was red meat to all the news directors, you know. Uh, Comey's reopened the investigation. Oh, my God. And however many days later, 11 days or what, a few days before the election, out it comes that there's nothing there. That's not a good story. Mm. The better story is Hillary's guilty. We found something. Now there's more red meat, but it wasn't. So it, it wasn't a retraction on page four of the newspaper but it wasn't covered as much as that initial, oh my yeah. God, Jim Comey's done this. 
Yeah. Now, you also have the American voter whose attention span is whatever that is, you know, yeah. and they aren't listening anymore. All they know is that Hillary was investigated and the FBI director who we're not sure about him. I hear people hate him. She's probably guilty anyway. And so it, that ship has sailed, yeah. you know, yeah. and and so the American voter isn't paying it. They don't have enough information. They don't understand what's going on. They don't. They don't try. They don't. They're sick of all of it, right. you know. And so that had a factor. And then James Clapper will tell you the Russians. You want to know who cost Hillary the election? The Russians. That's what you learn as yes. you dive into this and 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 stuff like that. And it it becomes a shared responsibility. That yes, he triggered by reopening it, but um, it, it wasn't just him. At least that's what I came to, you know. Uh, I want to I want to ask you one last thing before we take a quick break uh, to pay some bills. But uh, I mean, how weird it's just you sat across a table from Donald Trump or at least a, yeah. sort of a, a semi approximation of Donald Trump. How'd like, you know, I mean, Gleason, well, I mean, Gleason, you're, you're, Gleason's, I know he's an actor and everything, but he's like, it'd still be a little weird to be. I mean, those scenes are very, you know, the dinner was a weird thing for Comey. The, the experience of seeing it reproduced and on film is a a thing and they're, they're iconic in the American mind now that these dinners took place, that that dinner took place in particular, that one dinner, yeah. but the meetings with Trump are all so uncomfortable, but they're now, they loom so large in the public mind because of Comey's book and because the way people talked about them. I don't know how you guys shot the movie and what sequence you shot it, but I would have just been like, okay, there've been some big scenes you played in your life, but the scene where the first real dramatization of Trump offer the small screen that millions of Americans are going to watch is this one. And and if you don't count Alec Baldwin and, you know, the SNL caricature, I'm talking about like a real actor doing the part. That would be like a moment, you know, where, like, hey, I'm playing Jim right. Comey across from Donald Trump, the Donald Trump, played by Brendan Gleeson. Yeah, it, it was a great day. Um, we, I didn't, it, we were two months into shooting when we shot that. And Brendan and I met in the makeup trailer that morning. Uh, we were both putting on our hair. And we didn't rehearse the scene. We didn't run the lines. They just they brought us in and they they sat sat down uh, sat Brendan down and and rolled rolled camera. It was thrilling. It was film acting. It was like being in a Clint Eastwood movie who only does one take. Yeah, that's what that's Clint's thing. Yeah, that's what it was. It what it happened in front of the camera. And and that's 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 working without a net. And so it was thrilling. And what Brendan did, different from certainly what Alec did, which was is more of a character and a cartoon kind of thing is that he pulls you in film acting is about behind the eyes deborah winger told me that in terms of endearment act with your eyes and and because behind the eyes is what you think and what you feel and if we can think and feel it you might too and you might see it too and I, and i and jim said this that brendan brings that there's a private menace a private darkness right. to Trump that you see from three feet away across the table, uh, alone in a room with him. Ironically, well, well two, we did two takes of that. And then Billy Ray walked in and said, I want you to meet somebody. And it was Jim Comey. Jim had watched the first two takes of the loyalty dinner. Whoa. And one of the things Jim said was, uh, you brought all back, you brought the uncomfortableness, the awkwardness, the inappropriateness, the I, the I don't know what to do here that I was thinking. He said, I, I, I feel a little nauseous, which usually for an actor is not a compliment, <laughs> but yeah. I took it. 
All right, um, we're gonna take a quick break here and we'll be back in a second with Jeff Daniels. So we're back with Jeff Daniels. Uh, Jeff, a lot of people are gonna watch The Comey Ruled, which uh, for the record airs on in two parts on Sunday, September 27th and Monday, September 28th at nine o'clock on Showtime. It's gonna get a lot of attention. A lot of people are gonna watch it. It's right before that first presidential debate. But the reality is that when you did this part, you were coming right out of being watched by a lot of other people, a year-long run on Broadway doing Atticus Finch in To Kill a Mockingbird. And that was your year, right? 2019 was was essentially two parts for you, right? Atticus and, and Comey. And you've played a lot of parts, some small, a lot big over the years. But, you know, the ones that now have come to dominate a lot of people's sense of your current career, Atticus and Will McAvoy, both Sorkin parts, both... Uh, written by Sorkin, both embodying. So there aren't just like these aren't just these are characters that ha- have that have a lot to say about our moment, right? Both explicitly, they say a lot about our moment. They talk a lot about our moment. One of them, obviously, a, a, from a work that is much older, but that you guys modernized. I just want you to talk a little bit about these characters, those two characters, McAvoy and and Atticus, and what you know they were. They're big roles for you right? They were big roles in your career and they're roles that a lot of people said a lot of nice things about and, and meant a lot to a lot of people. So just talk a little bit about Sorkin, why you like working with them and what those parts, why you think those parts have been so resonant for people. Um, those two in particular, uh, they're, they're characters that uh, said, said, said those things that, that were thinking, only they say it better. That I've I've heard that of Sorkin's work, and and it certainly was true of the Northwestern speech, um, in Newsroom. Certainly, Atticus's closing mar- ar- argument, um, in and at the, at the t- trial of Tom Robinson was it was Harper Lee, but it was Aaron Sorkin. Uh, it it felt very familiar, and and I think that's where Aaron connects those who, who those who are trying to put into words how they feel or what they wish could be done Aaron can sit at the keyboard and get you there uh, you know doing Atticus Finch too uh, and then going into Comey as far as acting someone who's alive for all intents and purposes Gregory Peck is still alive you know I walked out there every night on, on Mock- at Mockingbird and some of those early previews, usually the star comes out and there's applause. Mm, not really. No, mm. no. I walked out as Atticus Finch, and it was okay. You're not. You're not Gregory Peck. I knew it. I knew it going in. I'm okay. I'm. I'm going to be open-minded. Yeah. So I was already going up against a you know someone who, like with Comey, is on YouTube and everybody thinks they know. I was going up against somebody bigger, you know, much larger than myself, and. And I got through it. I got by it. it. It didn't matter at the end. And so that that helped me in my approach to Comey. But all of those characters are, you know, that's Sorkin loves to, you know, the, the guy who sees something wrong and then does whatever he has to do, including say things to make people un- feel uncomfortable, he's going to do it. And Sorkin's really great at, at that kind of writing. So your dad was the mayor of the town of Michigan where you live, and you've been passionate about politics for pretty much forever. Both Atticus Finch and Will McAvoy are characters that connect to ongoing cultural slash political conversations in the country. With Atticus, it's race. And with Will, it's the media and its role in our politics, right? So I think that when we've talked about this in the past, it seems to me that part of the reason that you 
think these are great characters isn't just because they're well written, you know, the Sorkin touch, though, of course they are, but because you identify with both of the characters in a way, right? They're, you sort of like the way that they're tied to these larger national discussions. I, I, I like, I like doing things, uh, uh, that will resonate that people will be talking about after they click it off. Um, and certainly Aaron Sorkin, you know, led the way for me. That was one of those roles that certainly did that with Will McAvoy. Um, it's so smart and it moves so fast. People had to watch it twice to get everything. Um, there's also for me, and I've learned this from, from McAvoy had to learn it the hard way. He, he was more of a basket case as far as ego and ambition went, certainly in the early stages of the, of the run of Newsroom. But leading into roles like Atticus and and Jim Comey, uh, there's a there is like you said there's a there's a moral rectitude, there's a sense of right, there's a sense of rule of law, and these things are sacred. To a guy like Atticus, absolutely. Um, though he, I think he was blind to his own whiteness, and I think that's part of what Aaron was able to do was turn Atticus into Atticus in the play versus what the film and the book do. Um, that was pretty much the only real adjustment, you know, as I could see it, as it pertained to Atticus. And, and Comey's the same, you know, has that in common as well, this sense of rule of law, and no one is bigger than that. And, uh, and there are things that are bigger than us and more important than us, and sometimes people who aren't behaving in that way need to be reminded of that and Atticus did it Jim Comey did it and you know the second third seasons McAvoy did it as well yeah I, I agree with all that I guess the thing you know it's funny why Diane and I have been for like like the 19th time have been back like kind of dipping back in and out of the West Wing recently and the thing about the all this about the Sorkin characters and I think about this with Atticus and I think about it with McAvoy in a way part of what Aaron does and and you obviously I know you're a huge West Wing fan is how you came to be connected to Sorkin, right? You were a Yeah, fan. I watched it to watch the writing. Yeah, yeah, right. And you just said a thing a second ago about how these characters say things that you, that we, the audience, the things that we think, but they say them better than we could. They also kind of embody an idea about America that people, there's an idealized kind of thing. People, like, that's the way that I want my White House to be. That's the way that, you know, that, that Atticus embodies an earlier America, an America that kind of had it, still had a core of decency and empathy and could learn and grow and change. You know, McAvoy in a toxic news environment, kind of trying to find his way back towards being what the news media used to be, at least in people's minds, what they thought it was, an idealized conception of like how the media served the public good. There's something like in all of those characters and, and, and representations of reality that people are like, we've lost something and somehow the reason they that people love them or connect to them is that they feel like they're something they want to try to get back to and i think that's a function of just how people are so despairing of everything about the current state of our media our culture our politics everything if people are like looking for a desperately for a better version of that and they see it in a lot of the stuff that aaron is writing and in the way that you have played in some of those cases does that make any sense to you yeah, it does. And it, and I'll tell you, it's in the second half of the, of the Northwestern speech in the first episode of Newsroom. It's the second half of it. Actually, hold on a second. Let's listen to a little bit of that right now. We stood up for what was right. We fought for moral reasons. We passed 
laws, struck down laws for moral reasons. We waged wars on poverty, not poor people. We sacrificed, we cared about our neighbors, we put our money where our mouths were, and we never beat our chest. We built great big things, made ungodly technological advances, explored the universe, cured diseases, and we cultivated the world's greatest artists and the world's greatest economy. I remember we did the first take and I was angry through the whole thing, all the way to the end. And then the second take, Greg Matola, the director came over and said, a little more melancholy in the second half where, but we could be, this country could be the greatest country in the world if, and then Sorkin starts to list some of those things. And it's, and it's the frustration and that I have, which is the connection of, can we please not belittle education? Can we please treat people of all colors with decency and respect? You just go, we tried it your way, okay? Can we now please, for God's sake, you know, that's where I go. And I think that's where a lot of people go. And, and it's not happening, certainly not now in 2020. It's going the opposite direction if Trump's going to have his way. And I think that's the, the, the intellectual and emotional frustration that a lot of Americans have. And I think Sorkin, as well as anybody, speaks to that. And it's in that second half of that speech. It, that could be applied to almost anything uh, that's going on today. The hope that we could be better than this. you know. And I think Aaron... Aaron has no problem riding that horse. All right, let's take another quick break, and uh, we will be back to talk about the future and why it, how it could possibly be better than the present with our friend Jeff Daniels. So, Jeffrey, does anybody ever call you Jeffrey? Nobody calls you Jeffrey, right? My mother. Okay, I like to be in that My company. My mother and you. I like to be in that company. That feels good for me. Um, You're perfectly fine. So we were on television together. I want to talk about... At the end here, I want to talk about Trump and I want to talk about everything we've gone through in this year. We could talk about this for a very long time and we don't have as much time as we probably need to discuss all these things. But one of the last times I think I was on television with you, you uncorked a, an incredible soliloquy, which, well, let's listen to that for a second. Oh, God. I live in Michigan and um, after the election, I was surprised at some of the people. You know, I said, can you believe this election? They go, yeah, isn't it great? And you're going, whoa. And I think there are people in the Midwest between the coasts who don't pretend, who don't know anything about, who don't care about this, who don't have time for this, who have to make a decision now. You have to decide whether, like Atticus, you believe that there is still compassion, decency, civility, respect for others, do unto others. Remember that? Do unto others. All that stuff you guys believe in, and you still voted not for Hillary or for Trump. Where are you now? If the big gamble is to go all the way to November 2020, which I agree, and lose, it's the end of democracy. So there you are basically saying, talking about your, how your neighbors reacted to Trump's election and then talking about what's at stake in this election, which I think people, this was, you know, when we had this conversation, it was, you know, more than a year ago, back in, in May of 2019. It's now yeah. September of 2020. That, that, that soliloquy of yours went viral at the time, but the key, the element was it, to it was, you know, basically if Trump wins or if whoever the Democrat was, turns out to be Joe Biden, doesn't win, uh, it's going to be the end of democracy. 
you know, we're yeah. now, you know, as I said, a little more than a year down the path and we're almost to that day, November, 2020. Do you still feel like the stakes are that high or do you feel like they're higher? Is that like really what we're talking about? Being on the line in November? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, you know, May 2019, I remember looking at, at, and I could see Nicole, I couldn't see you. I had David Jolly and Corinne, I think was, uh, Corinne was across the, the table. I mean, jaws were dropping. And and I wasn't wrong. I was just one of the first, one of the first to say it. I mean, do you people not see what this what is going on here? And now, as we sit a month out from the election, uh, it, it's nothing short of a coup. A one-party overthrow uh, of the government, uh, and they—they're just blatant about it. So, and yes, it will be an authoritarian government. And I don't mean to scare anybody, but uh, there will be no presidential elections if he wins. Ivanka will be appointed the first woman president in the history of, of the United States of America in 2024. I mean, that's what we're going to have. We're going to have a royal family. Right. You genuinely think that you're not, you, you're just, they're not hyperbole I for do. you, right? You think that essentially no, that I Trump do. reelected in November of, of in, in this coming November, six and a half weeks from now, is a Trump that ends up trying to impose some kind of an anti-democratic yeah. authoritarian autoc autocracy. Yeah. 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 It's, it's as obvious as him behaving completely like a guilty man, a criminal, because he's hiding something. You know, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's so obvious. If this were a script, it would be thrown out because it's a, it's bad writing. It's too blatant. It's too obvious. And so I, I'm, I'm, yeah, yeah, I, 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 I wasn't wrong. And that's what's at stake. And uh, I hope people are more informed. I, th you know, I think they are. And I, I, you know, things like the Comey rule will give you more information, you know, before you go to the election, especially that that 20 percent, if they even still exist, that are in the middle that hated Hillary, couldn't vote for her. How bad's Trump going to be? You know, really? I mean, I'll get my tax cuts and he'll have 10 people around him who who will stop him from doing something stupid and crazy and dangerous. We'll be OK. How bad can it be? And now those 10 guys aren't there. Right. They've been replaced by 10 guys who want to pull this off. And so that that's what I see. You know, you can say I'm wrong, but that's what I see. It's nothing short of a of a you know, one party, one party rule by a minority party. I mean, that's what we're doing here. It's not a democracy. You know, so that's what's at stake. And I hope people are better informed. And I think after three or four years of Trump and his handling of COVID, not to mention, I mean, go down the list of the other 30 things in the last three years. Have you had enough, particularly the people in the middle, have you had enough? You know, Biden is not gonna send us over the socialist cliff, you know, <laughs> just just, just for the good, for, the, for just the sake of decency and civility and to let's get this country back where we're not waiting to see what, what the President of the United States tweets about some celebrity today. God's sake. We're so much better than this. We are so much better than this. Republicans are so much better than this. At least the ones like my dad, those guys. I mean, I, that party doesn't exist anymore. So for those who are hanging on to that, their Republican roots, that party's dead. They, they took it and they ran with it. 
Now, you got to own everything now. You got to own everything that Trump stands for. The lies, the racism, the sexism, the misogyny, and can't wait for Jeffrey Epstein. Can't wait for that stuff to come out. You know, you got you to own all of it. You can't just want your tax cuts. And I think there are a lot of people in the middle, a lot of people around where I live. There are a lot of Trumpers, but there are also some people going, yeah, yeah, I can stomach voting for Biden. Oh, good. What a sacrifice you're making. Terrific. Please do it. How can I help? <laughs> what, what would you do, by the way, if I let you be king? You could do one thing, you know, just total fiat, act of God, force majeure. You're in charge. You can do one thing to fix everything that ails the world. What would it be? I would require every white American to read Isabel Wilkerson's case. Okay. You will get a better understanding of, of this entire country. Right. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, I, an, it's an eye opener. Well, you just, again, it's another thing we'd have to have a long conversation because I know you, you like I, like race is the whole thing. And that's a whole other kettle of fish, but you got to go. Take care, brother. Happy to come again. Happy to come again. Talk to you later on, man. Thank you. Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount. Thanks again to Jeff Daniels for being here. And remember, part one of the Comey Rule premieres Sunday, September 27th at 9 p.m. ET and PT on Showtime. If you dug this episode of Hell and High Water, please do us a solid and subscribe to the pod and definitely leave a nice rating in the Apple Podcast app. It really helps us out. I'm your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Aaliyah Jackson and D. Scott Carroll engineered this podcast. Diana Roten and Justin Chermel provided research. Sari Soffer is our producer, and Christian Fidel Castro-Russell is our executive producer. And big ups to the one and only RZA for our show music.